your beautiful prayer and reading the scripture this morning. So, as we've been continuing our series, Myth Becomes Fact, from this prologue in John 1, uh, we began this series by asking the question, who is this Jesus? Who is the person of Christ? Uh, We began by looking at Jesus is the Word, the incarnate Word of God, the Logos. Uh, Paul talked about that Jesus is the light and the life of the world, but that he was not received by the world when he came. But to all those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And on Friday, Paul talked about how Jesus dwelt. He tabernacled with us, God with man. Well, Well, today as we continue our series... I want to begin by thinking back to yesterday, to Christmas. If you have children, maybe you are a child, or for some of us it's been a while, but maybe you have been a child before, you know that children naturally love Christmas. They get excited. And unless something happens that really sours their attitude, they are anticipating, they are excited for the day when Christmas will come. And it's not uncommon that children months or or weeks before Christmas are thinking about all the gifts they would like to get, the presents that they will receive. And during this time, there's a a popular common expectation in culture, even if it is lighthearted, that if you want to get presents, you have to behave. You have to be a good little boy or a little girl. Naughty boys and little girls don't get presents. And so we ask the question, sometimes in jest, have you been naughty or nice? And un- underneath this logic is that in or- you, need to or- you need to behave in order to receive presents. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's certainly better than teaching children to be bad in order to get presents. But Christianity and, and the Gospel of John are very different at their core. Because, because the message of Christianity and what John is teaching us is that the world has been bad. The world in darkness has been naughty. And yet, we have received a great gift. The apostle uh, John describes it as darkness. Jesus, a few chapters later, when he is talking with Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus goes even a bit further. He says that we loved the darkness because our deeds were evil. And because of this, Because of our love of evil and our love of darkness, we do not naturally receive God. Our natural inclination, our natural instinct is to push God away and to live life as we see fit, to look for other things to fill that gap. But And so it is in this context that our passage here today that John confronts us with this astonishing truth that amidst a world of darkness, of death, of lies... God has graciously sent His Son, the Word, the God of light, of life and truth, to us. And so in our verses today, John wants to overwhelm us with this truth that Jesus Christ Himself is the greatest gift and the perfect expression of grace. And so as we examine these verses today, we'll see three points to show us how Jesus Christ is the greatest gift and perfect expression of grace. So our first point comes from verse 15. 
where we learn that Jesus Christ is the gift who surpasses all the prophets. Yes, God had spoken in different places and times and in different ways in the past, but his final word, his greatest word, comes in the person of Jesus. And Jesus Christ is the gift who surpasses all the prophets. You see, in the Old Testament, a prophet was, the primary job of a prophet was not to predict the future, but it was to declare the revelation of God, to declare the word of God, and to remind God's people of his truth. And so a prophet was sent by God's initiative, not man's, so that we may know who God is, what he has done, and what he expects of us. And unless God takes the initiative, unless God comes to us, left to ourselves, we could not come to a true or saving or intimate knowledge of God because of our sin, because of our darkness, of our world. And so John the Baptist takes on the role of a prophet. And as a prophet, we're told elsewhere that he wore camel skin for clothes, that he ate uh, wild honey and locusts. Perhaps you can imagine maybe a big duck dynasty beard. And he's wandering through the wilderness and he's preaching repentance and the coming of a Messiah, baptizing people for the remission of sins, and sometimes sharply criticizing the political leaders of his day. And this was not normal. Many people looked at John the Baptist and thought, what a crazy guy. Who is this? If you could imagine today, maybe not in person, maybe it's online on YouTube, a man wandering through rural Ontario with a big beard, wearing bearskin and fox fur, who eats beetles and berries proclaiming, repent for the Messiah is coming. And he has some sharp words for the leaders of our day. How do you think, how do you think we would react? I think it'd be pretty easy to look at him and say, what a nut, the guy's crazy. Or we might look at him and say, what an awful man, how unloving. This is not good for public peace or, or mental health at all. But Jesus encounters John the Baptist, the prophet, and Jesus tells us what he thinks of John in Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. You see, John the Baptist is actually to be considered the greatest of the prophets, even greater than Elijah and Moses. And this would have been shocking to those listening to Jesus because this went against the cultural expectations of the time. Jews would have revered Elijah and Moses in a way that would be hard for us to understand. So how and why is John to be considered greater? Well, it's not... Because John is the wisest prophet. It is not because he is the best preacher or that he is the smartest. And it is not because John is the most successful. After all, his ministry ends with him being beheaded by one of the leaders he was criticizing. But John's role was to initiate the coming of the Messiah. Perhaps a it's a bit like if you've ever been to a music concert when, when crowds were allowed, that you have these um, bands or musicians open up before the main performance. They are there to get you ready and to set the stage for the grand performance, the main performance, the main spectacle. Well, in a similar way, we could say that John the Baptist opens for Jesus. He is there to introduce another one 
greater than he. And so in this role, in this privileged, honored role, John is to be considered the greatest of the prophets. And so what does John say in this role? Well, in our verse it says, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, this would have been puzzling to people both then, and it it can be puzzling to us now. What, What does that mean? Because John is born first. John is older than Jesus. And John's ministry begins before Jesus' ministry begins. And again, in the culture of the time, to be older, to have begun first, is to be in a a place of honor and prestige. And so here you have the older talking to the younger, saying, you are to be honored above me. This is incredibly rare and unexpected. Well, John is saying this because he looks at Jesus and he knows that Jesus is no ordinary man. You see, John, the prophet, he could preach the word, but Jesus is the word. John could speak of truth. Jesus is truth. And John could proclaim grace. And Jesus is grace. And in that way, John knows that while as a human Jesus is born after him, in his divine nature, this Jesus is God. He is before all and he is incomparable. He is the God of the universe. And that there is no one like this Jesus. That's why uh, if you were reading in John 1, a few verses later in verse 29, John says when he sees Jesus, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is unique because God himself has finally come in the flesh. He has come to give us the final word. And he has come to bring salvation for sinners the forgiveness of sins, to transform men and women who once loved the darkness that John talks about into lovers of light, lovers of God. That is how Jesus surpasses the prophets. It is the gift of God giving himself to the world, to an undeserving world. This leads to our second point in verses 16 and 17. John wants us to see that that Jesus Christ is the gift who is the perfect expression of grace. Jesus Christ is the gift who is the perfect expression of grace. Grace is a a word that that we Christians, we use often. It's, It's all throughout Scripture. And so we can become numb to its meaning. We can come to expect it. But in the Gospel of John, John only uses the word grace four times in the whole Gospel. And all four come in this passage. One in the verse that Pastor Paul preached on Friday, and three here. He is is shouting grace to us. And so if we look at verse 16, John says, Out of his fullness we have received grace in the place of grace already given. Now now that first phrase, out of his fullness, here John means that, that the nature and the gift of Jesus In the nature and gift of Jesus, we find full satisfaction. In him is perfection, is completion. Uh, We we live in a culture that can be a bit critical. I can be too critical sometimes. People can love to criticize. But when someone criticizes me, or maybe someone criticizes you, even if we don't like it at the time, there's often a bit of truth in most of the criticism we receive. 
And that's one reason sometimes it's so hard to hear. But when we look at Jesus, he is above criticism. See, Jesus cannot be more holy. Jesus cannot be more loving or more just. He is full in every attribute of his nature. If you criticize Jesus, you you can say the words, but your criticism has no merit, no weight. It doesn't hold up. It is not true in the way that someone might be critical of myself or of you. In Jesus, in his fullness, is everything we need. We need no greater grace. John goes on to say, We have received grace in the place of grace already given. So in in receiving Jesus, we are receiving grace. That is, a gift we do not deserve. In the place of grace already given. So do, do you see the implication, the logic? While Jesus is the greatest gift we do not deserve... God has been gracious to his people before. This isn't the first time God is showing grace. And and it harkens back to the Old Testament. Now, Now, sometimes people look back to the Old Testament and they think of the God of the Old Testament as being rather mean and ugly spirited. And sometimes they can set up a false comparison between a God of the Old Testament who is angry and and wrathful and the God of the New Testament. And he's loving and he's kind. But, But John here is saying, no, nothing could be further from the truth. That if we read the Old Testament rightly, correctly, we will see that its pages, its stories are filled with God's grace. And so it's not that God has not been gracious before. Rather, it's God's grace has been building to the apex, to the climax in the person of Jesus Christ. John demonstrates this in verse 17, where he says that through Moses came the law, and in grace and truth come through Jesus Christ, came through Christ. And if you think back to Exodus, God gives Israel the law after he saves them. After he delivers them from slavery in Egypt, God gives them the gift of the law. And the law is grace because in the law of God, we learn about God's character, that God is holy. And in the law, we learn from God's wisdom and goodness how to live rightly, how to be a blessing to others and please God. But as good as the law is in this regard, we are still left needing more grace. The law is not full The law is not the fullness of God's grace because the law exposes our sinfulness. If you look at the law, we realize that we not only do wrong things, that they stem from our our nature, our sinful nature at our core, at our heart. And it reveals then, the law reveals our misery. The law reveals that we need mercy, we need grace, we need something greater than the law if we were to have any hope. And so the law given through Moses is a gift of grace, but it is not enough. The law, which is powerless to save, comes through Moses. But grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And it is this grace and truth which does save. And it has come in the person of Jesus. And this shows us the fullest, the clearest revelation of who God is. And so while this world is often dark and harsh. This is due to our sin and rebellion against God ultimately in the grand scheme of things. 
So, so much so that this world justly deserves God's judgment. But God, in His loving kindness, has not left us helpless. He has not given us what we deserve. God Himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, has come to dispel the lies and give us truth to show things not as one mere opinion or that's your perspective, but things as they actually are. Not my truth, your truth, but as Francis Schaeffer used to say, true truth. And so this world has been sent by the love of the Father, the gift of Jesus the Son, so that you and that I, sinners that we are, would find eternal life in Him. George Swinnick, uh, a pastor in England who lived in the 1600s, described this grace and truth of the incarnation in Jesus this way. The Lord of all became a servant. The Lord of glory became of no reputation. The, The bread of life was made hungry. The only blessing was made a curse. The prince of life was put to death. He goes on to say, We who were naked, restless, famished, wallowing in blood, gasping for breath, waiting for demons to escort us to the dungeons of darkness. But God looked on us in his favor. He gave us rest in his bosom. He freed us from the bondage of Satan, sin, death, and hell. He adopted us as his children, accepted us and clothed us in his righteousness, and married us to his only begotten son. All of this is bound up in John's use of grace. This news of holy love, of salvation that has come to the world through Jesus, See, there are many good gifts God gives us. There are many good gifts God gives to unbelievers. And some of us maybe got some very good gifts yesterday. But friends, there is no greater gift than Jesus himself. He is the perfect gift. This leads us to our third and our final point. John wants us to see that that Jesus Christ is the gift who makes the Father known. And Jesus Christ is the gift who makes the Father known in verse 18. Read with me, or follow with me. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, one of the objections to Christianity often is that if God is real, why isn't there more evidence? If Christianity is true, there ought to be more evidence And some unbelievers, if you talk with them, they wonder, if God is real, why can't I see him? Where is he? I'd like to see him. And and if we're honest, uh, I think all of us believers at one point or another, and if it has not happened, it probably will come sometime, have wondered, God, where are you, God? God, are you there? But the Bible makes clear that one of the reasons why we cannot see God is because God is holy. And we are not, because of our sinfulness, we cannot bear to behold God in all his glory and wonder. 
Imagine if, if you've ever been camping or uh, maybe on a beach on a warm summer day and you have a blue sky and the sun is shining, just beaming. Now, if you tried to look at the sun without any protection, could you do it? No. No, we, we instinctively will we'll close our eyes. We will look away. Maybe if you're really stubborn, you'll squint and, and try a little bit. But you can't do it. And if you could force yourself to look at the sun in all its splendor, you would damage your eyes. Why? Because the sun is too much for us to behold, even though it's so far away. Well, in a much greater way, if we were to behold God, we would not just go blind, we would die. When, when Moses meets God on Mount Sinai in Exodus, God says, You cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. And so Moses has to hide in a rock cleft in the mount. And, and it, it tells us that God passes by and allow, allows Moses to see the back of God's robe. And this experience is so awesome, so incredible for Moses that his face becomes radiant. And we don't really know what that means. But we know when Moses comes down from the mountain, the people who knew him were terrified. And run away from him because they've never seen anything like this. What happened? He met God. Or in Isaiah 6, when the hem of God's robe fills the temple in his holiness, Isaiah, a prophet, a godly man, from our perspective, a good man, falls to the ground convulsing and he cries out, Woe is me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. See, in our sinfulness, living, used to living in a world of darkness, we cannot see God in all his glory and splendor. It is too much for us. But, but, but the Apostle John is saying, Jesus has seen God because Jesus himself is God. And in verse 18, it says, is in closest relationship with the Father. More, more literally, this can be translated as, is in the bosom of the Father. It is a picture of the Son's oneness with the Father. And here we are touching on the relationship within the Trinity, and there is mystery here, more than we can understand. But the point is that, that Jesus who is one with the Father and has seen the Father, has come down into this world so that we may know the Father. This is much more than a mere dry intellectual knowledge of knowing. It's not like, oh, we know we should eat more vegetables. We know Austin Matthews is a great hockey player for the Toronto Maple Leafs. No, it, it, it much more resembles the way you know your good friend. And they know you. It more closely resembles the way a wife knows her husband. Uh, John, St. John, in the book of Revelation, gives us a glimpse of what this knowing God will one day look like for believers. In Revelation 22, John says, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, 
and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and he will reign, and they will reign forever and ever. Isn't that astonishing? That if you believe in Christ, that that one day, you and I, we are going to behold the face of God in all his glory and splendor. But we're not there yet, are we? For for all of us, we're really going to have to wait until we go home to be with the Lord through death. Where our spirit will go to be with the Lord and we will wait for the day of the resurrection of the dead. Or, unless Christ comes again, his second advent, when he will come in the full display of his glory and power. So it is a promise, it's a guarantee that Christ has given for us, but it is a a now and not yet. We know Jesus is certain, but we've not yet experienced all the benefits of that knowledge. We know Jesus, but there is more to learn, more to know. Well, what do we do in the meantime? What does all this mean? Well, it means that if we want to see God, we must look to Jesus. There is no other. And we must believe all he has done and all who he is. We must believe in his incarnation and Christmas reminds us of that and of his redeeming work. We must believe this grand story in John 1. One New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, he, he summarizes all that we have been talking about through this series this way. The Word became our flesh and blood, the stuff of His creation. The Word was God, the Word was flesh, astounding incarnation. But when He came to visit us, We did not recognize him. Although we owed him everything, we haughtily despised him. In days gone by, God showed himself in grace and truth to Moses. But in the word of God made flesh, their climax he discloses. For grace and truth in fullness came and showed the Father's glory. When Jesus dawned, our flesh and died This is the gospel story. Now, maybe you're here today, and you have heard that story a hundred times. You know what Christianity is all about, and you've heard the message. But you have not yet believed. And maybe you're here today, and you are hearing this story for the first time. Well, equally to both of you, Jesus calls you to believe in himself this Christmas, this Boxing Day. No matter who you are or what you've done. To you, Jesus calls you to believe him. To entrust yourself to him. So that you may know and see the living God. And that you may have eternal life. And become lovers of the light. Lovers of God. And for the rest of us who who have heard this story and we have already believed. We are Christians. We, We know this Myth become fact story, and we hold it dear. The, the question Pastor Paul began this series with was, who is the person of Jesus? Well, I hope that, that you and I, that together we can say in our hearts that I know this Jesus. I know who he is. He is God. God in the flesh. He, he is my Savior. He is my all in all. 
He is my greatest gift. And I know that I, that I am too easily distracted by, by the things of this world. I, in my heart, I can grow so cold and so dry towards him. And if I'm honest, I do not think about the fact that I will one day see him face to face as much as I should. I do not hold that as dear as I should. But that we have gone through this series that we can say together, but I know because of Christmas, because of his incarnation, his coming, because of the cross, that I know his love and grace, and that he will not let me go. And that one day, that I will behold the face of God in all his glory and splendor. Do you know that, friend? That that is where you and I are going? To meet and to see the living God, Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come before you this Boxing Day, Lord. We thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the gift of your Son, of your love, your grace, your truth. We thank you for this church that we can gather together to worship you, to be reminded of your truth. And we pray that you would be with us throughout this week. That where we need encouragement, that you would encourage us. Where we need correction, you would correct us. And that you would always treat us in your love. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we will be able to pray and speak to you and behold you before us. Pray this in the beautiful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.